Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, young and old, short and tall, and everything in between, and welcome to a special edition, uh, a sort of high mutant hybrid creation of uh, the IRR and the Daily Friend, and that is we are combining for a special episode our two podcasts, that is the one uh, that we do four times a week, the Daily Friend Show, um, and the one that Gabriel and I do once a week, which is Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. So welcome very much to all of you. We are also on Facebook for the first time. So we're very happy to be there and uh, hopefully we will be entertaining and exciting for you tonight. Anyway, let's get started. Um, we have today, of course, a special guest, which is uh, Miss Helen Zilla. Helen Zilla, how are you? I I'm afraid you're still muted. <laughs> <laughs> phrase of the year you're muted i'm Indeed. well guys and it's very rare that i'm on a show with two guys with longer hair than me <laughs> well no I, I, we are looking doing our best to look like we're sort of disheveled crazy people but uh, i assure you we're not um we're i'm your host nicholas <laughs> we're i'm your host your host nicholas larimer and this is my co-host mr gabriel krauser gabriel how are you sir I'm very good. I'm I'm joining I'm joining the crew here from a guest lodge in Petrateeth, uh, right. on the edge of South Africa, and um, I'm very very glad to feel uh, sort of back like I'm in the IRR at the moment. Indeed, uh, and that is why his sound quality is perhaps not fantastic. But when uh, when you know in this new age we have to make do, I suppose. Anyway, so we're here to talk about Helen's uh, new book. That will be coming out very soon. Uh, Helen, can you remind us of the date that that will be coming out? Yes, the 26th. That's Monday week. I'll have all the printed copies this Monday, the 19th, but it's going to be in the bookshops from 26th of April. And obviously, and I'll take a lot and on Amazon. The title cool. is Hashtag Stay Woke, Go Broke Why South Africa Won't Survive America's Culture Wars and What You Can Do About It. So the title is short, but the subtitle is rather long. Indeed, as most interesting books have. Um, so I guess we should start with the basics here and ask you the very first question that all authors should be asked, which is, what exactly is your book about? I mean, it's got quite a provocative title. Well, my book is about, in one sentence, that America's culture wars have the potential to destroy South Africa's democratic project. And it explains why. America's culture wars are around the role of immutable biological characteristics in shaping society. Now, put in simple terms, America has managed to make race essentialism or turning racial differences into the key differences between people has turned that into a progressive ideology. And so the argument goes that on the basis of race and on the basis of gender, white male heterosexuals, of course, sexuality too, have abused all of the power structures and hierarchies and all of the knowledge systems to entrench their power to the detriment of everyone else, especially black people and gay people and women and everybody else including smaller marginalized groups such as transsexuals, which is the marginalized group of the celebrity moment in terms of woke ideology, if I could put it that way. Uh, 
And so basically the woke movement in America is all focused against the archetypal Marlboro man. To take down Marlboro man from the epicenter of power in all the institutions of America. And to reorganize knowledge hierarchies and to reorganize power hierarchies. That's what the battle is about. In South Africa, where we are still recovering from the tremendous damage done by that ideology, but in the form of apartheid, where whiteness had to move away from blackness in South Africa and create separate territories for whites and blacks, this race essentialism that was turned into official government policy and law by apartheid. To return to that idea with a notion that it could be progressive is going to be extremely damaging, especially if the notion that all of the institutions of the constitution and all of the institutions built up over the last 100 years in South Africa are merely representative of power abuse and of oppression, to have all of those institutions wiped out will make it impossible to sustain the democratic project. And that's what I argue, but in much more simple terms. So that is what my book's about. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, and I think it's kind of on the minds of a lot of people right now, because of course, uh, the world seems to be going in very strange ways very quickly, um, particularly the US. But one of the things I really liked in your book was this metaphor you used of the rhinoceros in the living room. Um, so could you just explain a little bit Firstly, what that's about and, and how exactly, why, why is what's going on in America of any real concern to us? How are these things actually getting to us, to affect us? Well, first of all, the rhinoceros in the living room wasn't my metaphor. It was another writer who I read and who I do attribute that, that uh, metaphor to. She basically says that whatever happens in America, giving the, given the preponderance of Facebook, of Twitter, of all the social media platforms, when any ideology grabs public attention in America and becomes popular in America, the rest of the online world can't escape it. So whatever happens online in America is like a rhinoceros in our living room. And that is why you find so many young South Africans can tell you exactly what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is doing what the issues are in America, what the big battles are in America, they're often totally clueless about what is happening in South Africa. And they take over the debates and ideas and hip, modern, woke culture from America and apply it to South Africa without any understanding of how fundamentally different our contexts are and how devastating those ideologies are going to be when tried to be implanted in South Africa. Gabriel, do you want to uh, ask a question or two? Yeah, so so I think my first one going off of that is that to to a lot of woke South Africans, uh, certainly a lot of my woke friends, uh, Helen Zilla is known as the person who wrote that tweet, and and you don't need to say any more, and and everyone has to shake their heads and sort of spit somewhere and uh, and, and feel very uh, grossed out to, to think that such a person could even exist. And you you spend a while going through it. Now, just from my my background was sort of uh, 
thinking that colonialism, in many ways, very devastating, rapacious, extractive, uh, oppressive. Um, at the same time, some wonderful things came through. Uh, uh, some one particular moment is 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 the abolition of slavery. Uh, but there are there are many exemplary institutions um, that are laid out, and 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 we do the best to take the best out of those ideas. And you see this pattern through history. Everywhere has been colonized at some stage, and the places that do well kind of take the best from the former colonial powers and and make something new out of it while getting rid of the worst. That seemed to me like a very straightforward claim, and you sort of work your way up to that, um, and, and and then describe this moment. Where, where you're cancelled. And there's, and there's a couple of revelations that I think are just astonishing and that make this book really worth reading for people, not just who are interested in the ideas, but interested in what Nick just said, how they play out. So one of them is that the, the, the outrage at your tweet was in part manufactured by bots, by sort of professional Twitter hitmen. Another is that people within the party, that uh, the DA, um, had been waiting for a moment to do something like this, to denounce Helen Ziller, so as to prove that the party is not white. Um, and, and there's a third one, but that's going to be my second part of this question. So, 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 so the first part of the question is, could you just sort of talk us through that, that period in your life it's a very personal thing. It, it, it's, uh, it's something that you, you speak about quite movingly. You mentioned that you're sort of almost relieved that your mother hadn't lived to see that. So if you could talk to us about that personal side, but then also sort of the, the, the broader political implications of, of entering into a South Africa where a renowned journalist uh, uh, with great credentials of non-racialism and, and, and freedom fighting, who then becomes a renowned politician, gets cancelled on, on, on 140 characters. <laughs> well, yes, it surprised me too, especially as what I was saying was in a context of what I had learned in Singapore, and I learned an enormous amount in Singapore. But interestingly enough, and it was something that one of Zuma's uh, former bodyguards had told me, which I reveal in the previous chapter, they had been waiting and scouring my social media posts for something to cancel me on. Now, I was all, all, obviously not the first person to be cancelled in South Africa. I tell the story of Chris Hart, who's a very well-known economist, who was cancelled before me, and he really got into very hot water. He got fired from his job. I almost got my membership of the DA stripped from me, and I only didn't because I fought back so hard. But basically, Cancelling had become a thing in the United States and a thing in Britain and a thing in much of the English-speaking world where the woke police, the woke thought police, very much like Orwell's 1984, would scour people's social media posts to look for the slightest violation of the woke narrative. And when they found it, they would go in for the kill. And of course, it wasn't long before companies such as Bell Pottinger and others, Cambridge Analytica, we know about some of them, started seeing a huge market gap for that sort of service. And they offered it to political clients to destroy their opponents through outrage archaeology, digging through people's previous social, uh, social media posts, 
to find anything that might have once been said long ago that was not quite within the parameters of woke ideology today, or look through people's current posts for anything that could be exploited to destroy the opposition or to destroy individuals who were particularly influential. And completely unbeknownst to me, that was basically what was going on behind the scenes against me. But not only by the people that you would expect to be doing that, such as the ANC and others, but also amazingly, I learned, by the DA too. And extraordinarily, although I had stepped down and really done my utmost to transform the party, the notion that while I was still around, the DA was going to be seen as a white party, and therefore they somehow had to cancel me right out of the DA to prove that the DA was a completely refreshed brand that was no longer a, a white party, was the brainchild of a very woke American consultant that they had called Stanley Greenberg. And he came along here and said, look, if you want people to stop thinking that the DA is a white party, what you have to do is bring in a white head on a platter, decapitate a prominent white person to show that Moosey is absolutely in charge of the DA, to show that he's nobody's puppet, because of course the ANC's only got race to play on. So the minute I stepped down and Moosey became the leader, suddenly out of nowhere, Moosey was suddenly my puppet. It was a complete invention. I was off the federal executive, I was off everything, I was minding my own business and being the premier, but because the ANC only has race, as a weapon, suddenly now Moosey was my puppet. And instead of ignoring that rubbish, because the ANC is only ever going to play the race card, Stanley Greenberg took it really seriously because he comes from this context in America where everything's about race, and he believed all of this. And he said, well, to stop this narrative that Moosey is Zilla's puppet, Moosey has to bring in Zilla's head on a platter. And then they had to find the moment to do that. And quite unwittingly and unknowingly, I gave them the opportunity to do that when I came back from Singapore and started enumerating the lessons that I'd learned there. And one of the mm. key lessons that I'd learned there is if you want to be successful, you take the best from the past and build on it. You don't try and eradicate everything. And I was basically saying that in the context of this whole decolonization debate at our universities. Decolonize universities, decolonize libraries, decolonize artworks, decolonize all of that. And I said, this is ridiculous. What is decolonizing a university? A university is a legacy of colonialism in and of itself. Libraries are a legacy of colonialism. The written word is a legacy of colonialism. English is a legacy of colonialism in South Africa. What are they talking about? The legacy of colonialism is very negative in some aspects, but it's not only negative. Now, that seems to me such a common sense statement, but that the DA pounced on in order to get rid of me and in order to strip me of my membership, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew that was complete nonsense. I mean, if the DA had ignored it, it would have been a slight fuss for a week or a bit. Mm. And that mm. would have been that. But the fact that I, the DA thought, aha, this is our moment to fulfill the strategy that this American genius has thought of, you know, mm. that was just bizarre. To appease the gods, you must you must <laughs> produce a human you sacrifice. Must bring a sacrifice. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. And, and I think one of the most amazing things is that you then go on in the book to you sort of make the arguments on principle and get into the backroom political machinations. And there's this line about Helen Zelena meeting with two other very important party members 
frying onions while discussing the future of what's to be. But then you get into the, the, the political side of it. And, 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 the, and there was this accusation, which was very widespread and which I kind of believed because at the time I didn't work um, uh, where I do now. I, I took these kinds of things for granted. If the experts say it's so, then it must be so. And the, and the experts on Twitter certainly said that this is the kind of statement, whether it's true or not, um, that's just going to get you enemies. So you shouldn't say it on that basis. And I just want to read a small extract from the book in this regard, um, where the, the, the DA's own internal polling had sort of been misrepresented through the party, but then you dig down to what the polling actually found, and it's this. 57% of black voters agreed with the statement that the legacy of colonialism was not only negative, but also positive. In other words, a significant majority of black voters actually supported the wording of my tweet with the addition of the word positive as applied to the legacy of colonialism, a description I never used. 54% of black voters agreed with the statement that South Africa could, could not have developed without being colonized. Again, a statement much more radical than the one you made, uh, but supported by, by a majority. And then this was the most amazing one. Fully 38% of black voters said that my tweets would actually make them more likely to vote DA. This is the most extraordinary result of all, given that the most we have ever polled in an election is 6% amongst black voters. To have 38% of black voters polled in a random stratified sample saying that my tweet made them more likely to vote the DA showed me that the tweet actually had a net positive impact on voting intention. Now, I think that this is the, that is the kind of claim that should make a lot of people want to put your uh, political head on a platter because it is completely devastating evidence-based devastation of the thought that you can tell what someone thinks by looking at the color of their skin. And I, I, I think it's a gift of this book and it's a gift of, you, of your career to have produced such moments that, that turn the woke narrative in this case right on its head and, um, and make it do a funny little silly dance that, that you can only really laugh at because it's, it's just so devastating to, to, to what, uh, well, Keisters would assume. Well, it's absolutely, I mean, I was also amazed by that. I was really amazed by that. And I would never have even gone to dig down into the polling if we, the DA hadn't done its own internal investigation on um, whether, you know, whether my tweet had cost them votes in the election. And I was asked to make a submission to the to the commission. And then I said, well, let me look at what the polling said at the time. So I got permission from the Federal Legal Commission to look at the polling. And I was completely dumbstruck, completely dumbstruck. And I said, well, no wonder they didn't want to give that to my lawyers. No wonder they didn't want to give that to my lawyers. Yeah. Right. It kind of makes one question uh, when they saw that data, why they followed through for so long. But anyway, um, I just want to go back a little bit to the question about to, to the role of social media in this. So in the book, you go through this very detailed description of a, like a sort of a point by point basis of how um, a cancelling happens, so to speak. Um, and one of my questions is, so I think you'd agree with me that sort of this woke ideology has captured an enormous number of elite institutions, particularly in the US, but also in the UK and in South Africa. Um, and I've, I, I, I want to, you, you, you refer to these cancellings as, as reminiscent of medieval witch burnings. 
And I think that's quite interesting because um, I would say that one of the last times we had a technological breakthrough that was like the internet was the printing press, right? It was as revolutionary. And what was one of the first things that really took off when the printing press was invented? Well, that was precisely when people started printing books on how to find and kill witches. And so I wonder what role technology do you think has to play in the rise of wokeness and whether some of this is actually sort of almost societal growing pains from dealing with a new technology? I know it's a bit of an abstract question, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, it's a very, very interesting point. And the additional point about social media platforms is that you can be anonymous. And so having that power and being anonymous brings out the very worst in people. It brings in the, out the kind of Lord of the Flies, uh, basic evil in human beings to be able to decapitate people without anybody seeing who they are and the vicious means that they're doing it. And the best uh, analogy that comes to mind is one of the most magnificent scenes ever put to film, which is the stoning scene in the life of Brian. If you've seen that, that movie, which I'm sure you both have, you know, all these women dressed up as men going off to the stoning and they're absolutely bloodthirsty. These women who, who talk in squeaky voices but have to then speak in these very deep voices to disguise who they are. That's kind of the medieval version of the internet, disguising who you are, coming with huge bricks and stones to lob them at somebody and then find out that you are actually the first casualty of that. Now, that is the most extraordinary and brilliant scene, obviously, before all social media was there. But it's so brilliant because it's universal. It can be applied to the original witch burning and it can be applied to social media. But social media has put the printing press on steroids. And it's also enabled a lot of people to publish things and not only publish things, but publish things without anyone else knowing who they are. And it's also enabled them to indulge in this group bloodlust, the madness of crowds, as Douglas Murray calls it. And so it brings the very best of human ingenuity and technology and capacity to communicate and share across very deep divides. And on the other hand, it brings out the very, very worst bloodlusting people. And it's trying to get that balance right that is so difficult. So uh, I do want to quibble a little bit with something you said there, which is you talk, you, you say anonymity is part of the problem. And I think obviously that's what you say is true. When people are anonymous online, they often behave very badly. But in my experience of using social media, quite often when these mobs form, a lot of the worst actions are performed by people who are well-known, by celebrities, by uh, the, the blue check marks, as they're sometimes derisively referred to uh, on Twitter. You'll get often uh, fairly youngish, independent journalists or bloggers or media personalities who often whip up the mobs. And maybe they don't necessarily send the death threats, but they often... Uh, very actively rebel and encourage this behavior and I think spark the mob mentality. So I guess my question is, what is it that's drawing people to, to that ideology? Is it just sort of an innate bloodlust and a sense of power? Or, or why are people being so attracted to, to wokeness, particularly in elite institutions? I think it's moral posturing. And people like to be on what they think is the right side of history and like to posture and like to posture for each other. So woke people do everything for their own status and their own positioning. It has absolutely nothing to do with marginalized groups or anything like that. They want to posture how progressive they are and how on the right side of history they are. I mean, a classic example for me where Emma Watson and, and Daniel Radcliffe on 
on J.K. Rowling, where she made a very, very valid point around women's spaces being having been fought for by feminists for many, many decades, and how it should not be that easy for any man who identifies as a woman to then automatically assume that the places that women have fought for long and hard, such as cloakrooms, such as safe spaces in many ways, should sound, suddenly be open to everybody that identifies as a woman. And what does that do to women who identify as women on physiological grounds? She asks a very valid question. It's a, it's a crucial question around, for example, gender neutral bathrooms, which some women have a serious problem with. And I think in South Africa, we should be asking very serious questions about the unintended consequence of that. But because it's become the core celebre of the woke movement, anybody who raises a valid point about that gets canceled immediately. And then everybody jumps on the bandwagon to show their progressive credentials and to parade their own moral superiority. And when people owe as much to their career as Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter and Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter movies, have no qualms but to absolutely go and rip J.K. Rowling to shreds, it is just quite unbelievable to me, quite unbelievable. If you don't agree with someone's argument, have an alternative position and argue it convincingly, but don't cancel people. That is the most illiberal thing. It really is reminiscent of medieval witch burning. Gabriel? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you on the, on the ingratitude and the illiberalness of that. I suppose my... my my quibble a little bit is this. Don't you think that one great institution is, is the vote, is democracy? And in a sense, when you vote out of power, a political party that's been in power, you are cancelling it in some important way. And when you lobby against a political party, you say, look, that political party has been in power. And they've had all the, the, the nice jobs and they've been in charge in the union buildings. And, uh, and I think we should vote them out. It's a little bit like cancelling. Um, am, am, I, am, am I onto something here? Is there, is, in other words, I, I suppose I may be anticipating something that we wanted to get into later. But like you encourage people to play a proactive role in, in this grand debate, in the, in the, in the sort of clash of ideas whose consequence will be the preconditions of our of our material and sort of social lives going forward. So how do you think about people engaging and engaging critically when that needs to be happened and sometimes engaging in a sense with real power, the power of the vote, for example, uh, without that slipping into this, this, this bloodlust, witch hunt, head on a platter kind of uh, sadism? Well, first of all, let me say that democracy developed precisely to prevent the bloodlust and the chopping off of heads and the mutilating of bodies if you don't like power abuse. So what you do is peacefully go to the ballot box and vote people out of office and vote others into office without a civil war and without a coup d'etat. So democracy's mechanisms were designed 
not to be motherhood and apple pie, but to take the fierce contestation around power and control and accountability and give it institutional form so that it could be expressed without physical violence. Now, cancelling is a form of very profound psychological violence, but cancelling is normally directed at an individual. What makes it so powerful is that it separates people from the group, and because individuals are particularly vulnerable to that kind of damage, it goes for an individual, casts them out of society, makes them the epitome of evil, gets everyone who was once close to them to disassociate themselves from them, and then holds them up as an example to anyone else who dare violate a woke narrative. And in that way, it's extraordinarily effective because once people see what has happened to someone else, is anybody else, even if they know it's true, going to stand up and say, um, well, I'm sorry, but she's right. Very, very few people will do that. I mean, in our matric history textbook at the time, Dr. Malawudzi, who had written that textbook, co-authored it, had basically a little section on how colonialism had ended slavery in Africa. And I quoted that, and he was outraged. He then did quick, quickly distanced himself from that. And it wasn't because he hadn't said it. It was because the cancelling of me was so effective that he was absolutely terrified that he was going to be cancelled too. And that is the way the wokes enforce and impose their narratives on whole populations just by cancelling a few people. They put the fear of God into everyone that if they put a foot or a word wrong, they will be the next to be cancelled. Yeah, I like that. So, so, so you're distinguishing between sort of going after ideas or going after a group like a political party, which is voluntarily coordinated uh, versus sort of a whole group targeting one person, making an example out of them and then terrifying people. I think there's another distinction as well, which is, um, which is empathy. Uh, there's something about this bloodlust, this this cancel, which which sees no room to 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 look for the good in someone else, uh, and and even make an attempt at a sympathetic interpretation or understanding. And I think one thing that stands out about your book, and that I you know I really encourage everyone listening to this to to seriously uh, go and check it out because. Uh, you will see this played out in greater length than we can afford in this interview. But in your book, you express a real empathy with wokeness. You you both signal, you both draw attention to the noble intentions of the woke and try and place your si yourself inside of the mind of someone who's woke. Now, this does lead to sort of some some strange... Uh, discoveries, one of them being that the ANC might be one of the most racist uh, parties in the world, but not in the way that I think most people would initially take that to be. Do you, do you want to talk us through that sort of interpretation of, of, of Kendi? Um, yes. Well, I have done quite a bit of reading for this book, and it was very interesting for me to see just how difficult it is to transport the analysis from America to South Africa, but sometimes how absolutely opposite it is. 
And Ibrahim X. Kendi is one of the high priests of woke America. And he believes very strongly that both black people and white people can be racist. Now, that is an unusual belief in the woke ideology because in terms of woke ideology, and it's something that Kendi agrees with, you can only be racist if you have institutional power. And he says, whites have institutional power in America. Therefore, for the most part, it's only whites who are racist. But there are occasions where blacks do have institutional power in America and who implement policies that are very bad for other black people, and therefore they too are racist. So that was a very interesting idea. And I thought, well, if you can transfer all the woke ideology to South Africa, let's transfer that one. In South Africa, almost everyone who holds any kind of position of power and institutional influence is black, and they're implementing policies that are disastrous for the majority of poor people, making them poorer and poorer and less and less employed and employable. So they must be one of the most racist governments on, on the planet. And you just have to take work ideology and apply its logic, and you'll see where it leads you to. And that's why I do what I do on a number of occasions in the book. If I tweeted all of that, I would be cancelled all over again. And I probably will be cancelled all over again for my book, but I don't mind anymore. I've been cancelled so often that it really doesn't bother me at all. And I, I quite I sort of tote them up like badgers. I think you are uncancelable. I think <laughs> I think you're it should be hashtag stay woke, go broke, written by hashtag uncancelable Helen Zilla. <laughs> Well, they've tried to cancel me so much now that I just don't care. I just, I just say what I believe. Hmm. I, uh, so one of the things that, that always strikes me about, about this debate is when you sort of confront uh, work people with the idea that they're just race essentialists, um, sometimes they'll say, no, 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 we don't, we don't mean white people. We mean whiteness. And they make this distinction. And then you say, well, what is whiteness? And they say, Oh, it's capitalism, it's hard, uh, hard work, it's objective thinking, that kind of stuff. And then you ask, what is blackness? And they say, oh, it's community, it's sharing, it's things like that. And very often, if you kind of drill down to in, into it, a lot of work ideologues will basically describe whiteness as capitalism and whatever the alternative is, blackness, Asianness, Latinexistness, or however one should say that word, um, as basically being a version of sort of socialism or something. So how much of wokeness is really just warmed up, repackaged Marxism? Well, it's warmed up, repackaged Marxism with a racist edge. I mean, how dare they say that all whites are capitalists and all blacks are socialists, because that's what that's shorthand for. There are many, many black people all over the world who have seen what incredible terror death and impoverishment socialism has wrought on this planet. And to just put them all into one particular ideological basket because of their skin color is to me one of the definitions of racism. And I was brought up believing that generalizing around entire categories of people is racist or sexist. And I continue to believe that. People are individuals and allowed to believe what they like. And I have known in my life probably more proper white socialists than I have black socialists, quite frankly, and spend a lot of my time fighting with them. Not, to, not least of all my husband over all these years, 38 years. But he's coming right, slowly. So it's <laughs> worth having. So, 
So it's worth having these debates over the years. But, you know, the bottom line is I don't believe in generalizing about entire categories of people. And that is where the liberal idea comes in, these two great liberal ideas. One is that you treat everyone as an individual and judge them by their own merits. As Martin Luther King said, the, the content of their character, not the color of their skin or other biological attributes. And the other is that human beings are fallible. We make mistakes, all of us. And all the great institutions of liberalism are built on the fact that humans make mistakes, that power has to be checked and held to account, and that institutions need to be developed, strong institutions in society to do that. Now, that's very, very different from traditional cultures which say the chief has all the power. And it's a very short step in the woke ideology to say all of these institutions, such as an independent judiciary, such as the separation of powers, such as parliamentary oversight over the executive, such as the rule of law, all of these are foreign institutions. Mm. So we must get rid of them because this is all the, re the remnants of colonialism. Let's go back to the original system where the chief had the power and allowed us to work the land if, as long as we remained in his favor. And if we go to the logical conclusion of this mad work analysis, we are going to destroy the institutions that underpin our constitution because they will all be seen as a foreign imposition. And that is why you already have many organizations starting to question the leg legitimacy of the constitution. And that's the big danger we face. In America, the constitutional institutions are strong enough to survive this. In South Africa, they aren't, unless we really speak up and take a stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you, I think you trace out, I mean, you trace out an interesting history where, where South Africa has um, some useful institutions, some badly uh, bastardized and corrupted forms of them, but uh, there's this moment in the 90s where, uh, where things really come right. And um, you, quote, you quote well from Nelson Mandela's sort of Ravonia trial speech. You know, I, I've dedicated my life to fighting against white domination and fighting against black domination. And this is the kind of uh, point of value so important that it's, that it's worth living for. Uh, and if need be worth dying for, and that and that this promise sort of echoes through uh, the revolt, the the Robben Island uh, imprisonment into the seat of power, and then it comes short, and you sort of draw a sharp line in 1997. And I think what's fascinating about this analysis is that so many people have this idea that being critical of of BE. Uh, is to be critical of blackness or uh, something of the kind. But you, 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 you start from a different position. You sort of seem to start from the position that one of the key tenets of a functioning democracy turns out to be a sort of great 19th century discovery is an independent civil service that's not carrying the bucket of any political party in particular or any particular ideology. Uh, and and that, that changes. Um, in 97, just as it had changed, I suppose, around 48. Could you talk, talk us through that a little bit? Yes, indeed. And I mean, that is a very, very important insight because that is exactly what happened. Now, I was uh, lucky enough to be in the Cadessa negotiations in 1994, between 1994 and 1996. 
And one of the most important things in the interim constitution was that the Public Service Commission played an, an entirely independent role of appointing people into positions, senior positions in the civil service on merit and the capacity to do the job. The final constitution changed the role of the Public Service Commission into an oversight role, but no role with any kind of power whatsoever. And that is when cadre deployment happened, in which, as Joel Nichitenzi famously said, they would take ANC cadres and put them in the civil service in all relevant positions to ensure that ANC ideology permeated and controlled all positions of importance in the public service. And that Nelson Mandela announced at the Maikeng conference in 1997, and that was the beginning of state capture and the unraveling of democratic South Africa, that moment in 1997. And it was when Madiba was handing over the reins of power, but under his term, the policy of cadre deployment was established and he introduced it. And who was, who was the chief procurement Procurer, I mean, deployer, cater deployer in chief, Getle Yechle Kisa, I believe. Yeah, yeah, uh, Getle Yechle Kisa. Getle Yechle Kisa was. Getle Yechle Kisa Zuma was because he was a chair of the deployment committee, yeah. So there's this wonderful idea that state capture, the, the sort of later idea of state capture is the states around there and then a, a few terrible families managed to steal the state, somehow capture the state. But you've got this sort of picture of state capture being the capture of the civil service, of the utility providers, of the things that really fill in the potholes and keep the lights on and make the water flow and take the sewage away and make sure the dams don't get too empty and all that kind of thing. That gets captured deliberately and explicitly uh, by ideologues trying to prepare a sort of two-step revolution. So the one the one key point is somewhere around 1997, and then the other key another key point is 2012 when the second step of the revolution comes in. Correct, uh, correct. But you see, we mustn't even believe that it was to impose ANC ideology and the two-stage revolution. It was easy, just a nice cover for cadres to dig channels into capital flows and loot the country. And the interesting thing is that Jacob Zuma from 1997 was capturing the state. He was busy since 1997 making sure that all his cadres and comrades were put into key positions of power throughout all these institutions. And by the time he came to power in 2007, he largely captured the state already because he and his faction of the ANC had had this power through the deployment committee to put all these people into these key positions. And so by the time 2007 came along, Gedliechle Kisa Zuma, had already effectively captured the state. And what happened next was that all the Guptas had to do was capture Gedli Shekisa Zuma, and then they did it. Right. And then they could I think, um, the state. I think, I think a little tip to the ANC's uh, view of, you know, it often talks about transformation, but its view of transformation comes out from that, that IOL report recently, and I know it's a uh, difficult thing to quote sometimes, um, but IOL had this leaked audio from this big six meeting with, with Zuma and Jesse Duarte said something to the effect of um, there's this black judge in the North High, 
counting high court who rules against us, but Judge John Schlope always rules for us. Um, and this shows the judiciary is not transformed. So there, I think she gave the game away, which was to say that when the NC says transformation, they actually don't always mean catered, uh, you know, uh, uh, racial representativity. They mean ANC power. Of course they do. That's what they've always meant. ANC power and ANC looting. That's what they've always meant. So I, I want to move us on to the question I think that most people ask, which is they see the sort of woke cultural power coming down the tracks and they go, what are we going to do about this? Because everywhere it seems that anyone who falls afoul of these uh, shibboleths of these of these uh, ideas gets cast out of polite society and sort of gets re relegated to the fringes of podcasts um, if they're lucky. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> what, what can South Africans actually do? I mean, if this is an American problem, are we just victims ready to be swept away by the American rhinoceros? No, we absolutely can't be. And that's the argument of my book. We have to fight back. And we are not being relegated to the margins of society anymore. I mean, I fought back very successfully within the DA. And, um, and you know, the DA is finding its core and center again, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's not only because of me, it's because of a lot of people understanding how badly we went off beam and how we must find our non-racial, committed, liberal core again. And that's fantastic. And that's been, a, it's really been worthwhile doing that. But the first thing everyone can do is to speak up, not to be silenced. And I think the Institute of Race Relations does that very, very well. And the Daily Friend is doing that very, very well. And everybody's doing it very well that, that are in these institutions that are start, starting to speak up. But you see, more and more people will understand that what we said is true, even if they can't admit it. You know, just the other day, Carol Payton, who's as woke as they come in the business day, had this long lament in her column about poor old director at ESCOM being targeted as a racist because he was doing X, Y, and Z. And I thought to myself, well, what did you expect, dear? I mean, they don't only come for outspoken people like myself. If you are white and you do anything that a black person dislikes, you will be cast as a racist, except by black people of principle, of which there are many, who stand up for ideas and values and don't immediately cast you aside because of the color of your skin if you say something different or unpopular. But Carol Payton seems to think it's extraordinary that Andre de Rota has suddenly been targeted because of his skin color when he's trying to improve the efficiency or whatever he's doing at ESCOM. And I thought, well, you know, it reminds me of Nimola saying, when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out. Yeah. You better start speaking out very, very early because you're not going to be exempt, Carol Payton, and nor yeah. are you going to be exempt, Andre de Rota. You will all be cornered and you will always remember, I hope, that I was saying that for years and years, but of course they won't remember it because it'll always be different for them. Suddenly they'll be outraged. Now, you know, I've read a lot about Andre de Reta and this allegation that he's not doing things and not procuring things through the proper channels and all of that. I don't know what the truth is. All I know is that Carol Payton seems rather shocked that somebody should be accused of racism when they're trying to do a job of work. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> and welcome to the real world. And we've been saying this for the longest time. Yeah. 
I, I hear you on that. So, 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 so just to disambiguate, it feels a little bit like there are two points here, right? The one point is that there are people who are already not woke and, and they're just quiet. And it's not that great being unwoke and, un, and quiet uh, if that just means watching the rhinoceros uh, gorge through your neighbor and your, and your sister and, and, and hoping that it's not going to be you next. But the other point, I think, is that, um, that there are persuadable people, that there are people that are maybe a bit naive, that, that, that jump onto those good intentions, that like how nice it sounds to say we need to make up for the sins of, of the past and, and make sure that vulnerable groups are protected and so on. And that, and that they can be um, informed about when those, when those good motivations are, are, are being discharged in ways that make a positive difference and when they just sort of vaingloriously being manipulated and abused to make someone rich and famous or, or able to loot and, and make everyone else worse off. Um, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in, in my book, in my last chapter, I give some key examples of conversations that one can have in which one is being, let's say, attacked by the works that you are trying to give a rational and positive alternative point of view. And I've used three case studies. One is the Ashwin Willemser case. The other is a case over gender-neutral bathrooms. And I'm trying to quickly remember what the third is. The third is, oh, yes, the case in the DA, where you'll remember Solim Simanga and Kelly Malapo had that clash of positions. And Kelly Malapo made what I thought were totally unfounded allegations of sexual harassment against Solim Simanga. And I say that on an evidence basis. And I unfold those uh, conversations in my book to give people a sense of how to conduct these conversations because they're very challenging in reality. Then I also speak about how one can work with organizations that are trying to deal with the real issues that do things on a non-racial basis and that mobilize around matters that make a difference. And then I look at the growing number of people who are actually doing that and are seeing through this wokeness and how they're making a difference. So that is all very important and that's what I argue in my book. And I also basically say that if we're going to keep quiet about these kinds of things and watch as these things simply happen to other people and hope that in the end we'll be able to duck low enough so if they don't come for us, we're making a very big mistake. We need to stand up and we need to speak up. Right. So... I guess I should have asked you this question earlier um, because it's kind of a bit of a fundamental one. But why did you write the book? Your detractors will say, oh, you're just seeking relevance. And you'll probably say, because I want to save the country. But I mean, more specifically, was was there something you had in mind? Were, is this to convert woke people to, to um, I don't know, liberal thought? Or, or what was your idea behind this? Well, I'll tell you exactly how the idea arose. We have a young leaders program in the DA. and they came to show me the reading list. And they showed me a very good reading list. All the liberal classics were there and some modern things like Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray and a few other things. And I looked at it and I said to myself, there's nothing here that would guide a young liberal South African 
into somehow feeling empowered about our situation at this time and in this context. So I said to the very competent woman who runs the Young Leaders Program, I said to her, you've got to find a book that does this, that speaks to young South Africans in our context, in our situation, that can empower them to speak up against this mad race essentialism that is being presented as progressive when we all know that was the ideology that underpinned apartheid. What can we do? And we looked about for a bit and we couldn't find anything. And in the end, I simply said, well, I'm going to write that book. I will then write it for the program. And so on the 20th of December last year, I started writing it and I finished it on the 20th of February. So it took me two months to write. It's taken two months to produce what it took two months to write. <laughs> it gets very frustrating. But it's obviously, you know, it takes time to do these things. But I specifically wrote it for the Young Leaders Program. And then in the, I thought it will probably have a broader relevance. So then I decided to publish it properly. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's, I, as, as, as a journalist and uh, something, it's, it's really devastating that you managed to write this in two months. Uh, it's very irritating because <laughs> it reads very fluidly. It's um, it's cogent. It's exciting. It's well paced. Uh, so it's <laughs> <laughs> great. No, I, I, that's all I had literally. I mean, you know, my work at the DA is a very very full time job, and yeah. that's all I had. You know, twentieth of December was just before Christmas, and of course I had my grandchildren with me. We were in Lambert's Bay where my in laws are with the where my children's in-laws are. And so we were up there and there was a big family fierce as, as they do it on the West Coast. So there wasn't much time there, but I still got up very early every morning to try and get as much writing done before the day hit me. And then throughout January, the first 18 days of January, I must have written 18 hours a day. Mm. Mm. That makes me feel very useless and very lazy. And that model of, of writing, I think, is... I, um, uh, a, a, a creative writing professor at my alma mater, Toni Morrison, um, that was her line. If there's a book that you can't find in the library, then write it. Uh, well, that's basically, that's basically what I did. You know, we couldn't find the book that I wanted for the Young Leaders Program to give them a steer on how to deal with these issues. And so I said, well, you know, why don't I write it? So then I did. Yeah. So I think we're coming kind of towards the end here. So I just want to say, um, Gabriel, is there any any final questions you have uh, before we start to wrap up? Yeah, I, I, uh, we, uh, as you know, Franz Krenier, um our CEO, he he likes scenario planning um, because forecasting is fraught, but at the same time, he likes us to make hard calls. Uh, so what's your What's your hard call on on wokeness? Do you think do you think we can beat it in South Africa? So you've said you think we can beat it. What do you think the odds are? And were we to beat it, how long do you think it's going to take before wokeness is relegated from being a kind of prevailing norm, where it defines the politics that defines so much of our law and our material circumstance, and also defines our our, our social interactions, our, our educational experiences, our our, our our cultural engagement with one another. How long is it going to take from that? I don't think it'll ever go away myself, but how long mm -hmm. will it take, you think, from that going from the mainstream to being a, 
a sideshow, something that you might dip your toe into to to remember the the two thousands. Oh, you that fashion. <laughs> well, maybe the word out of fashion. Maybe the work, work, the word woke will go out of fashion. Words come and go, but this ideology of using your race as an advantage and a lever is always there as a massive temptation. I mean, if you can turn yourself into a victim on the basis of your race and demand reward as a result of it, and do that as a way of avoiding the major challenges of life, well, that's a very tempting thing to do, and you can understand why people do it. And you can understand why people seek rent-seeking behavior and all of that sort of thing. So it's a natural default, which is the opposite of the way I was grown, brought up, being the child of two refugees. You're never a victim. It's not anybody else's fault. If you're in a bad way, work harder. That's the way out of the problem. And that's the way I was brought up. That was my culture. And so to ever claim victimhood of any kind or to try and get anyone to feel sorry for you and to try and posture as a victim was completely unthinkable, completely unthinkable. But now that society rewards victimhood, you have more and more people seeking greater and greater degrees of victimhood and multiple victimhoods, something that is anathema to me. And of course, when people base their social status and their rewards on victimhood, then you're going to get a huge fight amongst various victims as to who's got the most victimhoods. And so while that's going on and while that's developing, which it is, and it's going to blow the whole woke movement apart eventually, we as liberals have to form a stable, focused movement that believes in non-racialism and all the things that we believe in, the rule of law, constitutionalism, and that we build an alternative that is cohesive, that draws people together, doesn't blow them apart as growing competitors for the spoils of a society where resources are radically diminishing, but brings them together as a productive, socially inclusive, cohesive entity to make society better. And the more we can provide the nexus of that, the more we will be able to provide a clear alternative and a growing alternative as the ANC and other parties crumble because of their incapacity to have a clear vision, a clear direction without trying to out-victimize each other. Right. I, I think someone once described wokeness as like a very, very um, zealous form of, of religion but without any redemption. There's no <laughs> redemption at the end of the story. It's all just suffering exactly. and torment and punishment. Well, you see, um, there can't be redemption because the, because the minute you're not a victim, you, you've got no status in wokeness. So they can't yeah, be redemption. I, I want to make a frank allegation of, of question dodging. My question is, <laughs> what kind of time frame can we... What's the, what's the earliest we can realistically expect to... Uh, drive wokeness out of fashion in South Africa? I think we're beginning to turn the corner already. Mm -hmm. I think when the ANC eventually finally crumbles and the EFF becomes the nex nexus for wokeness, we have to be a very strong and very powerful alternative. And that is when the major showdown is going to happen. So and that's what maybe we have to Maybe 2029 then is, is sort Probably of... Probably around there. Yeah, okay. that's what I'm looking at. 
Cool. All right. I think we're going to pretty much call it to a close there. If we had another hour, I would have brought up that I, uh, my, my thesis, which is not particularly original, that South Africa has a very long history of taking ideas from America. In fact, some of the, the founders of the ANC and the African theologi theological liberation churches and stuff um, actually were imported from the U.S. And that's a whole interesting kettle of fish, but uh, we don't have time today. But thank you very much. I would have said in this case, America's probably stolen race essentialism from us. Right, right. And you don't have to <laughs> go back too far to find out. Uh, Gabriel likes to point that out with our statue toppling, which was a uh, world, uh, world first in some ways. <laughs> we were translators. Yes. <laughs> So South Africa is still wielding influence like a great battleaxe on the world stage. Um, we exported fallism and then it returned to us as wokeness. That's sort of how I <laughs> it. We also, we also exported race essentialism long before fallism, believe me. Absolutely. No, of Absolutely. Course. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway. Hey guys, uh, so anyway, great talking to you. Yes, it has been. Uh, just a couple of final things. Uh, is there going to be an audio book? I saw someone ask that. Well, um, I could read it into a tape recorder. I've got this very distinctive voice I understand, so I could do that. I don't quite know how to go about that, but I will learn and I will find out. I could read it. I must say that right. uh, although, I, although I already have read it, I would I would appreciate uh, an audio version as well. They are pretty cool, especially when they're read by yeah. author. Yeah, I recommend <laughs> that because because I wanted to I wanted to listen to uh, the second half of it as I was driving from Joburg to Petrotiv. <laughs> And then, because there was no audiobook, I, I I almost got Nicholas to read it out to me uh, <laughs> while I was driving. But then it seemed like perhaps a hyperbolic use of the of Institute Office Hour time to have <laughs> two colleagues read a book to each other. Um, and just the the final thing, the title again, and when it will be available. The title is hashtag Stay Woke, Go Broke. Why South Africa won't survive America's culture wars and what you can do about it. And it'll be available on Take A Lot, on Amazon, and in the bookstores from the 26th of April. Fantastic. Just before Freedom Day. Um, so that's very good. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussion this evening uh, on this combined hybrid mutant podcast, as, as I was uh, saying at the beginning. Um, and I hope that everyone keeps that flag of liberty flying. Cheers, everyone. Thanks so much. Bye.